The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Well, hello there and welcome to the Disability Law Show. Back for another week, John Scholes here. And of course, joining me, uh, the brains, James Fireman, Tamara Gopi, and both Sam Firu, Tamara, and LLP. Reach out to either or both. Uh, phone call might work uh, just fine for you. Anytime, have a conversation on your own time. one 821 5900. You can always use the email address, which we're going to get to shortly here, and bring it on air, help at disabilityrights.ca. And yet another place for you to ask questions. It's free. It's anonymous. Searchable. That's the way it was designed, so you can look for a previous question similar to yours. Save a bit of time. That, mydisabilityquestions.com. I'll uh, reiterate those throughout the hour. But uh, we always get started with a uh, a week that was something that's been going on. Peaks your interest. James, it's up to you, pal. What do you got this week? Very interesting case that I've been dealing with that touches on WSIB, which is not an issue we deal with very often. And certainly we don't take on cases where the benefits are the in dispute are WSIB. It's just not something that we have expertise in. So I'm not suggesting if you are, if you've been denied WSIB, that you should be calling us immediately for those purposes. But there is an intersection between WSIB and disability benefits that is not well understood. And I think it would be useful for listeners to get a better understanding of how those things work together. Mm -hmm. So WSIB is available if you become injured in the course of your employment. Where that happens, you would apply for WSIB, assuming you have WSIB coverage. Most people do, not all. But if you have WSIB coverage, you've been injured in the course of your employment, you apply for WSIB, and if you're approved, and that would require showing not only that you have an injury that prevents you from being able to work, but that that injury happened as a result of your employment, if you can show that, then you'll get your WSIB benefits. Mm -hmm. You may also at the same time have long-term disability coverage. That would, if you're entitled to WSIB coverage, then you almost certainly would also pass the test for long-term disability benefits as well. But long-term disability benefits invariably will take WSIB payments as an offset, which means that anything you get from WSIB reduces dollar for dollar what you're receiving for LTD. And because WSIB is almost always going to be more per month, than the LTD benefit, it essentially zeroes out your LTD benefits on a monthly basis. And so when people are in this scenario, when they've been injured at work and they apply for WSIB and they're approved, they frequently don't bother with applying for LTD because, hey, what's the point? I'm not gonna get anything out of it anyway. Well, there is a reason that it is useful to make sure that you apply, even if you're not getting any money out of it now. And the reason is because WSIB may not pay you forever. So a particular scenario where this was really brought to light recently is a client of mine who became disabled as a result of an incident at work, but also had some other pre-existing degenerative conditions that played into it. 
Initially, his WSIB and his LTD were both denied. And so I was hired to challenge the LTD denial. And with the WSIB having denied it, there wasn't much of an issue. The full LTD should be payable. And certainly the medical documents suggested that he would be entitled to that. The thing is, after we started the claim, his WSIB appeal was accepted. And his WSIB payments started retroactively and continued on. And so it seemed at that point that there wasn't going to be much of an LTD claim, except that not long after his WSIB was approved, they then cut him off again. And the basis for cutting him off wasn't that he was no longer disabled. It was that the initial trauma that caused his inability to work was no longer the active cause of his disability. Whether that's true or not, WSIB was taking the position that even if he's still disabled, that disability is now the result of his pre-existing degenerative condition, not because of the trauma at work. Now, that's a precarious position, I think, for WSIB to be taking, because invariably there's going to be an argument that the exacerbation from the injury at work has led to this as much as a degenerative condition, but I'm not a doctor. I'm not in a position to be able to say that. Maybe that wins, maybe it doesn't. But the issue here is that now he doesn't have ongoing WSIB, certainly if he loses the appeal, he will. but his LTD is still available. Had he not challenged that, and especially if his WSIB had been paying him for a couple of years and he hadn't applied or hadn't challenged the LTD denial, he wouldn't be able to do anything about it. He wouldn't be in any position to be able to get those LTD benefits when the when the litigation reaches the point of settlement. He would have to try and apply for them, which invariably the insurer would say, sorry, you're too late. And if it's been you know, 12, 18, 24 months, the insurer may well have a good position to say, sorry, your application is too late. We're not accepting this now. And a court may agree with that. So even if you are getting WSIB, there is still a very good reason to apply for LTD. Now, if you're denied the LTD benefits when you're approved for WSIB, then it becomes a question of, is it worthwhile disputing that? And you know, as a lawyer, most lawyers aren't going to take on that kind of a case because there's no money involved. And most lawyers who do disability work do it on a contingency fee basis. And so if you're taking a percentage and that the amount you recover is nothing, whatever percent you're taking of nothing is going to be nothing. So it may be difficult to find a lawyer in that scenario to uh, to litigate it. But at the very least, you should be applying it and extending the the process as far as possible. And it's one of those cases where if you were receiving WSIB and you applied for LTD and were denied, that's actually one of the few scenarios where I would say, you know what, you should probably appeal. Don't hold your breath and expect that you're going to be approved. But I would appeal in that scenario. And if they allow you multiple appeals, continue to do it just to keep the claim active and open. And then if during the course of the two years after the initial denial, your WSIB happens to cut you off, you're still in a position to be able to bring litigation to challenge the LTD denial as well. Tamara, any thoughts on that? Well, so it's interesting because this brings to mind a case that came out years ago now but you know in the last five years i would say and it's i think it's called wiles and sun life and it was a position that the insurer had taken in in that case 
that uh, the WSIB was an offset. It was a deduction for both past and future disability benefits on the expectation that the WSIB benefit would continue to be paid. And so, look, I mean, this is disability law nerd stuff, guys. And so by no means do I expect any of you to actually look up the case. But I think James makes some valid points on this because the disability policies will routinely include a section that says we pay you X, but if you have other sources of income that you are eligible for, forget even actually receiving it. If you're just eligible for it, we get to take a deduction for it. And so you certainly, as a claimant who has a workplace-based injury, don't want to be left in a situation where neither are paying, right? Where you're not getting your WSIB and the LTD insurer is saying, well, we get credit for it no matter what, right? So look, the the claim, the, the decision in particular that I'm thinking of played out sort of in a midway position where the court said to the insurer, look, you get past, but you don't get the future and you got to wait it out. And that process can be a long process. But you certainly, I agree with James, don't want to be in a, in a situation where it's years down the road and you haven't asserted your rights to either or, and then you're sort of, you know, out of luck, so to speak, in not being able to seek that entitlement. And even though WSIB is a totally separate thing, it's they're self-regulated, it's a tribunal, you need to go through that process, your employer has to be involved in some way at the beginning as well, and they can provide an income loss uh, benefit as well as rehabilitation benefits. And it certainly should be uh, as a complement to whatever else you're entitled to for disability benefits through your employer or potentially even a private plan. And so as long as you're aware of those interactions, as long as you keep aware of the limitation period for the LTD claim, I think it is worthwhile to make sure that you've got all of your rights secured so that you are not in a situation down the road that you are without either of those benefits. All right, guys, let's get on to our first email of the show. Uh, again, anytime you want to send one along, we'd love to have you do that. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Gary is our guy. Says, I was getting STD benefits for a year because of mental health issues, and I'm now getting LTD, which pays 65% of my regular income. I have knee surgery scheduled for May of this year, and the recovery is expected to take about six months. Will this get me back on SD, on, uh, onto STD for the time of recovery? What do you guys think? Unfortunately, no. This is almost certainly going to be a scenario. And I say unfortunately, it's not such a it's such a terrible situation. You're on LTD right now. Mm-hmm. And those benefits will continue. The basis for this question is a common misconception about what disability benefits are paying for. Oh. Disability benefits are not paying for a specific disability. It's paying for the state of being disabled from working, which is often going to be multifactorial. It might be because of physical and mental health issues. It may be because of a number of different physical issues. As long as cumulatively those issues are preventing you from being able to work at all times, then you're continuously on the same plane. The only time a new claim would start is if you return to work and you were back for a sufficient amount of time that the recurrence clause under the first disability claim is no longer applicable. So it's usually something in the range of six months. But assuming that Gary is continuing to stay off work and he's getting his LTD benefits, then this would just be a continuation of the other claim. I think the reason why Gary is likely asking this is because in most cases, if you have short-term disability, and not everyone does, but short-term disability benefits typically pay more than LTD. Usually they're 
in the range of 80 to sometimes 90, even 100 percent of what your income was, whereas his LPD is paying 65 percent. So understandable why you would want it. But unfortunately, no, you're probably just going to continue with the SD or the LPD benefits, which are paying that 65 percent. Gary, really appreciate you reaching out. I want to follow up with a phone call. I'll give you the number as we get into our, uh, our break here. It's one 821 5900 We're going to go to mydisabilityquestions.com, which you can use freely and anonymously anytime to ask questions. They may appear and get answered on this show. If not, they'll get answered anyway, but uh, we'd like to showcase a few of them here during this, uh, this hour. We'll do that next as we continue with more of the Disability Law Show. Stand by. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employed of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And welcome back. Disability Law Show, James Fireman, Tamara Gobian. Reach out to either or both at the phone number 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. And the website to ask questions through your uh, tablet, your phone, desktop, whatever, mydisabilityquestions.com. That's where we're going, guys. Uh, this one just came in recently, said, does a medical diagnosis of anxiety and depression requiring both medication and medical leave from work constitute a short-term disability? I've been on leave from work since January 17th, but my employer's insurance policy only talks about LTD long-term and nothing regarding mental illness. What do you guys think? Well, I think, you know, the diagnosis is in some ways um, – less of a concern in my mind than the actual symptoms. I think most disability insurers and adjusters are very focused on the functional part of it. And so does the anxiety and depression really impact the individual to the extent that they cannot work? Is that supported by the doctor or whatever mental health uh, specialist? I think the courts have made it quite clear that diagnosis doesn't necessarily mean you're entitled to benefits. I think you really want to almost spoon feed. I say this a lot to the insurer about what it is that you are suffering from uh, since mental health is so specific to each individual person and how they experience it and what their recovery is for that. And so if you've been on leave for a period of time, certainly, you know, you want to make sure that you are inquiring with your employer, look, what are my options here? And with long-term disability benefits, it usually doesn't kick in for a period of time. There's what's called an elimination period or a waiting period. And some employers will have other benefits in that time that you can access, whether it's sick leave, whether you know they tell you you've got to apply for EI sickness benefits, or perhaps you have a short-term disability plan. Either way, you want to access any and all of those, and you want to make sure that you're initiating your long-term disability claim and application in time so that it's ready to be hopefully approved and paid once once that waiting period is completed. It's interesting, though, I recently reviewed a file for um, a person who reached out to our firm, and they had done this exact thing. They had applied for long-term disability benefits actually before their entitlement for LTD became would have been effective. And the insurer said, look, it's a little bit early. We're going to you know, wait, or we expect we're going to approve you. But in that time, if you wouldn't mind, you know, providing us some some updated medical information um, until we wait the two or three months or whatever it is for the effective date. And then the effective date came, they reviewed the medical information and they denied her claim. And so I think, you know, look, this is just a tale of, you know, things that we see. I think that's what we see on our end. 
Um, by no means should it discourage people to make that application and work with the insurer in that time frame. But I think you want to be aware that you know, you will be required to put forward all that information and to demonstrate that your disability is ongoing and still requiring treatment and that the symptoms still prevent you from working even through what's called the waiting period or the elimination period. James? Well, I, I would say, first of all, with the person that you were talking about who had applied early and said, we're probably going to improve subject to the updated medicals, that I wouldn't take too much away from that because whatever the was in the updated medicals, if that were, were included in the initial application at some point beyond where the application had been made, the insurer may well have just never said we're probably going to prove you. They would have just denied. And so I think the only thing that happened there is probably there was false optimism. But I don't know that the result is any different because there was an early application. I certainly don't think that should discourage anybody from applying uh, prior to the start date of the, the disability benefits. I think it's not a bad idea at all. Uh, getting to, it, maybe this is part of the question uh, I'm misreading, I'm not sure, but the question I think was also asking about whether or not they have short-term disability. And just so everyone understands, short-term disability benefits, first of all, they can be called different things. You, you address that tomorrow. Um, they could be called weekly, weekly income indemnity or uh, income replacement or all sorts of different things. But essentially, it is money that is uh, paying all or portion of your income in the period after you go on leave, but before LTD becomes payable. We will refer to that generally all as being short-term disability benefits, but your, if you do have access to that at all, it might be called short-term disability, it might be called something else. I don't know what it's going to be called in any individual circumstance, but if you want to find out, certainly you should contact your HR uh, department or person and let them let them direct you in the right spot. But it is not the case that everybody who has LTD also has some form of short-term disability benefits. In fact, I would say it's probably more the exception. It's not so uncommon, but I would say less than half of the people that come to us also have short-term. I don't know if that jives with your experience as well, Tamar, but I think it is a little bit less than half. Yeah, I think that's fairly accurate. I mean, I, I've not done the math. I know you're more of the math guy than I am, James. But um, admittedly, I think, you know, what I what concerns me more so is that people don't necessarily get accurate information from their employers. Um, you know, and, and we can talk about this on our employment law shows. But, you know, some employers, you know, just are not advising their employees about what benefits are available. You know, they don't even apply, don't provide booklets, they don't provide information. And I think, you know, when you're in a situation where you are off work, you're already dealing with your health, you want to ask some questions, you want to make sure that you're getting accurate responses. And so I would, you know, it's one of these things where you want to get to the bottom of it. Um, and so if you're being given the runaround by your employer, try and stick with it, so to speak. Uh, maybe go back to the initial packages and information that you got when you first got hired so that you're not missing anything. And, you know, this dovetails nicely, even when we get people coming to us and saying, my employer didn't properly report my salary. So now my short-term and long-term disability benefits, which typically are not at 100% of what I was making, are a lot lower than what I expected. And so, again, you know, this is something that you want to work with with your employer because it's up to your employer to advise you of what benefits you have, make sure that your coverage is put in place, uh, that there is no interruptions, that, 
you know, that they start the coverage when you expected it to start, for example, you know, sometimes they say, you know, you're on a probation, so we're not going to give you the benefits package the first few months. Um, so make sure it starts up when it does. Um, and I'm thinking of like pre-existing condition clauses and all these other things where these kinds of technical issues really matter. And then, like I said, including what is the basis of the salary upon which you're paying premium for your short-term and long-term disability coverage. And with that, guys, we can uh, we can definitely move on. And uh, I think we're going to roll down to uh, Allison. Right. I think Allison's the next one up. Email, by the way, help at disabilityrights.ca. Guys, my doctor wrote a note that I shouldn't be sent for another IME independent medical examination as it worsens my disability. But my insurance provider is completely disregarded that note and threatened to cut me off if I don't go for another IME. What are my rights here? That's uh, nice. <laughs> so I, I don't enjoy it because, you know, people get bullied by these insurers not knowing truly what their rights are. So I actually appreciate Allison reaching out to us and finding out, look, you know, what what can I do here? And again, the starting point is your policy. I think you want to look to see if your policy allows the insurer to mandate this kind of an assessment, to uh, you know force you to see one of their doctors and have you assessed by one of their doctors for what they call so-called an independent medical examination. Now, it's not independent, right? They're paying for this. They're paying for a specific expert to provide them answers, usually four or five questions, on where you're at from a health perspective and you know uh, whether or not you're capable of working in this kind of thing. And we've actually got a really good uh, FAQ on our ltdfaq.ca website on attending IME. So I would suggest Allison take a look at that um, after our show. But more to the point is, look, if her own doctor is saying that she should not be attending the IME, that it will worsen her health, her health issues, regardless of whether or not the insurer has the right under their policy to say you must attend, what opportunity does Allison have to resist this with the insurer? And I think it's difficult. I really do. I think that this is the exception to resisting the insurer. This is the advice we give is that, look, if it's, um, you know, contraindicated with your health, if it's actually going to make things worse by virtue of you attending this independent medical examination and your doctor has clearly stated it, I think it is fair to say and reasonable to say to the insurer, I just simply cannot attend at this time. But brace yourself, Allison, because if the insurer does have the policy provision that says, if we say you must, they will likely rely on it to say, well, you're not cooperating. We're going to cut you off because you're not being compliant with the policy. And that is a reality that you may have to contend with. And I, I don't like that situation for most people. It is harsh. This is goes back to the bullying that I was talking about. You know, the fair thing I think to do if, if I was the insurance company is to hold off and say, okay, we'll revisit this in a month. Uh, perhaps, you know, we need, you need to improve somewhat with your recovery. You know, perhaps they can send a medical update request to your own doctor to provide further details, the information that they're actually looking for. Um, but it, it is a really tough situation to be in if the insurer has the policy to back them up and you've got a doctor saying to you, uh-uh, you're not going. I prefer to have Allison follow her own medical advice. But like I said, it, it may result in the disability coverage being cut off. James? I think it absolutely will result in benefits being cut yeah. off. I think yeah. if, they, if they're saying that they want you to go to an IME and you don't go, they will use that as a basis for cutting off your benefits. And that might be fine. That might, you know, it might just be a situation where 
you're just not able to do it. It's going to set you back too far in terms of your medical recovery. And, you know, damn the torpedoes. <laughs> if they want to do that, then so be it. They're going to do that. And then you'll just start litigation and eventually get to a point where they come to the table and pay what they ought to have. And having put you in that position, knowing that the IME was not recommended by your doctor would actually make you worse, that's going to expose them to damages and put them in a difficult spot. Now, the practical reality is it means that you're going to be without any benefits for several months if you do that. So in Allison's scenario, what I always say to people is you have to make the decision that's right for you. You have to consider the almost certainty that your insurer is going to cut off your benefits and then consider whether or not, despite the fact that it's medically recommended that you don't go to the IME, you go anyway just as a means to keep your benefits flowing. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't do that. I'm saying you have to factor in all the likely outcomes and make the decision that is best for you. If ultimately you decide that even though your doctor is saying you shouldn't attend the other IME, that you need your benefits and you can't be without it for an extended period of time that you're going to go, so be it. If that is the case, I would first of all have my doctor again write a second note just clarifying that this is not recommended and will likely result in these types of exacerbations in your condition. And then after the IME, I would visit your doctor and make sure that any any exacerbation caused by the IME is documented in the medical file and submitted to the insurer so that there's a very clear a clear record of exactly what happened as a result of forcing to go to that IME. So you know, it, it's really going to be up to you and you have to make the best decision in your circumstances. But if you can, I would listen to what your doctor is saying. Allison, really appreciate you uh, reaching out. Sometimes it's difficult for people to do that, so uh, we thank you for that uh, that email. You can always follow up. And you as well, if you're listening to the show, with a phone call to James or Tamar, discuss your situation privately, one 821 5900 That email is help at disabilityrights.ca. And for quick and concise notations and knowledge about LTD in that entire sphere, you can go to ltdfaq. .ca, ltdfaq.ca, another resource for you that's uh, completely anonymous and free. We'll take a short break, continue more of the Disability Law Show. Hang in there. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. This is the Disability Law Show, exactly. And uh, you've reached it here, if not for the entire hour, for the remainder. Good to have you along for the ride. James Fireman, Tamari Gopian are always the uh, the two and their team you want to reach out to. Uh, after the show as well, hit the firm, and that's one 821 5900 Help at disabilityrights.ca, both disability lawyers with years of experience, so you can always reach out and uh, have a conversation on your own time. Another way to reach out, email help at disabilityrights.ca. That's the most common form. And lately, you've been using a lot of mydisabilityquestions.com. You can type your questions in there anonymously as well. It won't cost you a thing, obviously. And uh, from it, James, here we go. Rolling down to the next one says, how do I find out what if the, what if the insurer restricts travel while I'm on LTD? I can't find anything in the booklet that I've been given, and calling them seems like a really bad idea. So the travel on insurance, what do you think, pal? Well, I, I I understand exactly why the person says it sounds like a bad idea because you don't want to unnecessarily trigger your insurer to something that they may interpret 
as you having improved enough to return to work. But the reality is for most people, traveling on a vacation, particularly for a limited amount of time, does not mean that you are now ready to return to work. And traveling for other purposes, for example, to visit a, a loved one who might be ill or for a funeral or a wedding or anything of that nature, doesn't mean anything in particular at all, other than that you're perhaps able to physically endure the act of traveling, which tells you almost nothing about your ability to work, I suppose, unless your job requires you to travel. I don't know. Hmm. Um, but the, the travel policies or I should say the provisions that deal with travel and insurance policies do vary a fair bit from policy to policy. And so it is something where you want to take a look at your particular contract and see how it is dealt with. Typically speaking, but again, check your policy. Typically, most insurance policies will allow a limited amount of travel if you are traveling uh, within the country, certainly within the province, but within the country, usually there is no particular restriction. The policy would continue to apply while you travel, though, which means you would be required to have regular treatment. And so it would be necessary, whatever your travel plans are, to arrange for ongoing treatment while you're away, whether that's virtual treatment, making sure that you have medication, or perhaps finding a temporary treatment provider in the place where you are traveling to, to provide you with physical treatment if that is what you need. Whatever the case is, you want to make sure that all of those bases are covered, even if you're staying within the travel restrictions themselves. In terms of going anywhere outside the restrictions, uh, usually most policies will allow you to travel without explicit permission from your insurer, even outside the country for a limited amount of time, but not all. I've seen some that require you to get permission anytime you want to leave the country. Some will allow you to do it for 14 days or 30 days. I've even seen some for six months. So take a look at what the policy says. But whatever you are doing, whether you're traveling outside the country or not, whether your policy allows you to or not, whether you've gotten permission from your insurer or not, you want to cover your bases. You want to make sure that you have dotted I's, crossed T's, got your treatment plan in place, have whatever medications you need available to you, have someone on the ground where you're going that can help you or have set up virtual treatment in advance so that there is no basis for your insurer to say, that you didn't comply with the policy while you're traveling. But in terms of finding out, if you can't find it anywhere in the book, then I think you have to bite the bullet. I think at that point, it's really time to look to your your insurance uh, case manager and just say, can you please advise what the travel restrictions yeah. are? This is what I'm planning to do. And I've talked to my doctor and my doctor says, I'm fit to travel. Uh, and this is what I have, you know, this is what my intention would be. What are the restrictions under the policy? Your insurer may or may not try and use that as a basis for trying to uh, cut off your benefits, but that's true whether you've asked them or not. And the reality is that they are probably going to find out if they are contacting you with any regularity at all. Um, then that is something that will probably come out either in the medical records, which again, you're going to have to keep uh, your treatment ongoing as you're traveling. So that's going to show up in the medical records. Oh. Uh, or if they are calling you, you know, every two to four weeks and asking questions about 
what you're doing or what you have been doing that's likely going to come out then as well so even if you don't ask them initially they're probably going to find out and it isn't something that you you are necessarily best to keep from them because if you do go travel and they find out afterwards and you haven't told them in advance they're absolutely going to interpret that in the worst possible way so it's much better to be proactive about it in my view and get the insurer on side notwithstanding that they may at some point try and use that against you you can't stop living your life just because you're in the midst of a disability claim you can't stop living your life you have to comply with the policy if you want to keep getting your benefits but that doesn't mean that you're not allowed to do anything that you're never allowed to get some sunshine in the winter months or to go visit your family if you need to it doesn't mean that you can't go out and see your friends and have a good time i mean it depends on what your disability is but you know people are always afraid to live their lives while they're getting disability benefits and i don't think that that should be the case i think you at all times should make reasonable decisions and you should do things that are appropriate for your particular disability and the treatment and medications that you're taking but as long as that's true then I think you should continue to live your life. And if the insurer wants to try and use that against you, as long as you continue to have the medical support from your treating doctors, then it's something that is going to entitle you to benefits. And if you're denied, then it's something that we're going to be able to start litigation for. And if they do take something like traveling, particularly if it's traveling to see a loved one who's ill or something of that nature, mm -hmm. they do try and use that as a basis for, for denying your benefits, then that's gonna expose not just to having to pay the benefits, but also to potential damages as well. So it is weirdly something that can actually be used to your advantage down the road. So take a look, You know, I'd go through the policy one more time and just see if you can find it in there. But if you can't, I would, I would contact the claims handler and just ask what it is. It's better to make sure that you're not running afoul of the policy than it is to just take a guess at it. And once you're sure of what it is, just make sure that you have everything lined up and ready to go. And with that, uh, nicely done, by the way, sir. Good answer. We're going to take a short break. Get back to more of your questions in the last few minutes of the show. The email address going forward any other time, not just for the hour, help at disabilityrights.ca. And that one came from mydisabilityquestions.com. Or the phone number, of course, that's uh, often where you end up uh, going and reaching out to either James or Tamar. That number is 1-855-821-5900. We continue. This is the Disability Law Show. Hang in there. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And welcome back to the last few minutes of the Disability Law Show. The hour flies by for sure because of all your uh, your emails and uh, ways of reaching out. That's what we discuss on the show each week. Going forward, you can do that anytime or you can call James or Tamar, 1-855-821-5900. Email anytime too is help at disabilityrights.ca. And then finally, that website where you can ask questions anonymously has been around for uh, several years. Good one, mydisabilityquestions.com. That's where we're landing this time tomorrow. It's your turn, pal. Here we go. Says, Here we uh, go. I'm, currently, yeah, I'm currently on LTD due to stress from work and severe grief after my father passed away. My insurance is pushing me into the return to work program. 
can they force me to get back to work? Do I have the right to refuse? And finally, if the insurance cancels my claim, will I be immediately be fired by my employer or do I have the right to continue getting better at home and get back to work when I'm ready? What do you think? Well, this is a good one uh, Mm. because it does touch on both the disability part of our practice and the employment side of our practice, right? And so our firm really specializes in these two areas because you can see it it so often overlaps. And this question from mydisabilityquestions.com is is right in our wheelhouse. And so I, I want to tackle the employment side first, only because I think that there's a lot of misconceptions around what happens with my employment when I'm on disability. And the the truth of it is, frankly, that there shouldn't really be any consequences to your employment. The, the insurer should do what they're doing, and it typically is quite independent from what's happening with your employment. But your employer, all they really need to have is a one-liner medical note on their file periodically saying, presently, you're not capable of returning back to work. And that's it. And that And that's also assuming that your disability insurer hasn't updated your employer. Sometimes they do which means your employer isn't really even reaching out to you while you're off. But then what happens? And that's what this question is asking is, shouldn't I be allowed or be given the time to recover at home and not be pressured back to work? And that's absolutely true as well, regardless of what's happening with your disability claim. So let's say in a world your disability insurer does cut you off, but your doctor is still recommending that you stay off work. You should absolutely have a job to return back to. What may happen in that scenario is, as I said, the employer may reach out and say, look, we've been advised that your disability insurance you know, company has cut you off. They've assessed you as capable of returning back to work. Are you coming back to work? And then you have to engage with your employer on that return to work process. And even if it is premature, then you'll have to advise them of that and supply, like I said, possibly some brief medical note, perhaps a form to ensure that they, you are not losing your job. The worst thing you can do with your employer while you're off on disability is to ignore them. Okay, I say to people, don't ignore your employer. They will generally leave you alone, but they also have a job to do, which is they need to make sure that they're providing for you know their workforce and that, in fact, if you are expected to return, that they meet their obligations for that duty to accommodate, for that duty that the employer has to accept you back and work with you for that return to work to be successful for you and for them. And so we could do a whole show on that duty to accommodate, um, but just strictly in respect of this issue, you're not, you should not be automatically fired if you are cut off from LTD. And if you are, please do give us a call because that exposes the employer to a human rights claim and a potentially a wrongful dismissal claim. Because typically when you're off on a disability, you are protected from that right to be able to recover and be well and then return back to your position. So that is a problem for the employer if that is their knee-jerk reaction to you getting cut off from your disability benefits. But let's go back to that piece of it. This idea that the insurer can force you to do a graduated return to work. No one can force you to do that, okay? You should not be actually engaging in a graduated return to work unless there's a reasonable likelihood that it will be successful. Do insurers do this regularly? Yes, absolutely, because it serves their purpose. It serves them for you to force yourself back to work because then they achieve two things. They get you off claim and they have a reason to cut off your claim and they feel emboldened by that reason, right? So it justifies their approach to these kinds of claims, which is to get you off as soon as they can 
And they do that by putting you through a program that will demonstrate that you can. Hey, you know, it's a work hardening. We've given this therapy or that therapy, and this person is on the progress. And you know what? In eight weeks, they should be good to go. They'll be back at work. And so it's a problem, particularly for the insurance company, if there is medical evidence saying otherwise. And that is the key here, is that you want to lean on your own medical team to provide that support for you, to include in the medical information the details around why the return to work is premature, why you know the program in and of itself perhaps could set you back if it's too aggressive. Let's think about even a physical disability, for example, and if the recovery of that physical disability isn't quite ready for more aggressive treatment, more aggressive therapy, then that could set someone back physically from being able to return to their job, especially if they have a physical job, right? So those stars don't necessarily align, but the starting point always is to have that discussion with your doctor about where you're at. Now, this question though came to us as a, you know, stress from work, severe grief after this individual's father passed away. And so it is a mental health disability, I think at its core. And so if you are in a situation like that, is it any different? And the answer to that is no, it's no different. Even if it's a mental health disability, you absolutely should be given the right and the time and the the airspace, so to speak, for you to actually get the therapy that you need and get on that path of recovery. But you're going to have to lean on, I think in a situation like this, both your doctor most likely and whatever mental health specialist or practitioner that's treating you. In a case like this, I would have both of them comment on where you're at from a recovery perspective, where you're at from a health perspective, and when there could be potentially some discussion around a return to work, if that's even on the horizon. Otherwise, the advice should be, you know, my patient is still uh, under treatment. Here are the 17 symptoms they're still experiencing. Here are the three medications and the four therapists that they're seeing. Um, I'm, I'm exaggerating the numbers only for effect to say, look, insurers need to provide that respect. And especially when you've got a mental health disability, to add to that the pressure of the return to work could potentially be a recipe for a huge problem, a huge setback, a huge exacerbation. Because the other side of that is you you comply with the insurer, you go through that process, and then what happens? If you don't make that enough progress, for example, I've seen some insurers just prepay for that period of time and say, well, we think you've made enough progress, right? Then you're going to have that fight with the insurer regardless. And that may be where this is headed anyway. And so the bottom line is that if you are prematurely cut off from your disability claim because you were pressured to go through a graduated return to work, when your own doctor said you weren't ready, that is absolutely a basis for a legal claim. And we help people all the time in situations like this to get the benefits that they are entitled to that they should have been paid all along. Nicely done. We are out of time. You ran it right up to the end, Tamar. So uh, so there you go. You want to reach out now to Tamar James. Now that we're wrapping up for another show, here is how you go about doing that. The phone number, one 821 5900 uh, email would be help at disabilityrights.ca and you can ask questions otherwise it's like email but it's a website called mydisabilityquestions.com it's anonymous it's searchable so maybe your question or one very similar has been asked before that will save you some time if you look at the answers uh, posted by Tamar or James and the rest of their teams again mydisabilityquestions.com and that's a wrap we'll catch you next time right here on the Disability Law Show the preceding was a paid commercial program unless otherwise identified the guests 
on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.